On one sunny day in Iceland in October 1975, nine out of every 10 women didn't go to work one day. They didn't do their chores and they bounced on their housework. They took to the streets to show the world what would happen without women's collective labor power. It was a national women's strike. Organized by socialists and radical feminist groups, the strike caused schools and nurseries and airlines to shut down. Bank executives had to perform customer transactions. And a national newspaper was only able to print half of its usual length because there weren't any women to operate the printing presses. Many fathers had no choice but to take their kids to work with them. And there were reports of men arming themselves with candy and coloring books to keep their kids entertained while they tried to work. Sausages became an ironically phallic marker of the strike's impact on men. They were easy to cook and popular with Icelandic children, and they became sold out around the country as men scrambled to feed themselves and their kids without their wives to do it for them. To many men, and especially fathers, this was baptism by fire, but it worked. The country elected the first female president in the world five years later, and she governed until 1996. Today, Iceland has one of the smallest gendered wage gaps. The national women's strike worked. It showed the value of women's work, the unpaid wages. And sadly, most of the world, especially here in the U.S., didn't really learn any lessons from it. And capitalism and the patriarchy still go hand in hand to the complete disadvantage of women, those who are paid less in the office and then those who aren't paid at all at home. The idea that capitalism and patriarchy go hand in hand is certainly not new, but it's been radical. It's always been radical. And we're now in this failing late stage capitalist economy where its connection is starting to become something we just can't ignore anymore, especially after we witnessed on such a global scale the heartlessness of capitalism during the pandemic. Modern income inequality is dystopian and people of color are hit the hardest. Many anti-capitalist feminists like Angela Davis has been arguing since the 70s that the feminist struggle was necessarily anti-capitalist and that the anti-capitalist struggle must necessarily take up gender and race because capitalism oppressed women, people of color and the working class all at once. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about that connection, shall we? I'm Sarah. The older I get, the less I believe in capitalism. This is Reclaiming and Girls to the Fucking Front. What's up, everyone? How you doing? Welcome to Reclaiming, the weekly podcast where we spark a revolution from within. And every revolution starts with us sparking that fire inside, that one that tells us that there's more out there for us, that we've been conditioned to stay small and quiet. And fuck that, because me staying small and quiet and compliant is at my expense to increase someone else's power, right? (laughs) Anyway, hello, my love. I'm Sarah. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a writer, an artist, a witch, and a pole dancer in Los Angeles, and I'm really happy to have you here. Um, I'm seeing some really promising and steady growth in our numbers. And if you are just now joining us, we could not be happier that you are here. Thank you for taking a chance on me and on us. I think you're going to like it. And please know that I'm always available. If you have questions, comments, etc., you can reach out to me on the website at reclaimeffingeverything.com. That's reclaimeffingeverything.com. And if you aren't signed up for the newsletter, you can do it there too. I would highly recommend that because uh, the podcast newsletter kind of go hand in hand. Again, that's reclaimeffingeverything.com. Reclaim EFF. FINGEverything.com. And to our veteran reclaimers, hi, babes. I love you so much. Thanks from the bottom of my heart. I really appreciate you being here with me week after week. As always, if you could please continue sharing this podcast, um, that would be great. 
and also I say this every week too. If you could please head to Spotify or Apple, give this podcast a five-star rating and review. That would really help. Um, I've said it before. I hate relying on some tech bros algorithm. Um, so it'd be really nice if one of the algorithms shows my work to the people <laughs> that need to hear it. Um, and before we get into the topic, I'll give you a little thesis statement about it first. Um, here it is. It's very easy. Our modern day patriarchy depends on capitalism and capitalism depends on our modern day patriarchy. That's it. <laughs> it's fucked up. It's a fucked up, toxic, codependent love story like Edward and Bella or Christian Grey and Anastasia Steele, <laughs> in my opinion, and that of many others, is that to be a feminist and an anti-patriarchy activist, you also need to take a fucking long, hard look at capitalism and how exploitative it is to its workers. Now, if you are an economist or a political news junkie or someone well-versed in this, this thesis and what I cover might be a bit basic, <laughs> anemic, if you will. I'm not an economist. In fact, I had to retake it in college because it was the only class I didn't pass for my major. But I do know political theory and I do know feminist theory and I know enough from my own experiences and what I've witnessed in my not entirely long lifetime uh, to speak to this issue on a moderately impactful level. OK, <laughs> let's move on. Last week, AOC wrote this. I do not believe in late stage capitalism or that prioritizing the extreme pursuit of profit at any and all human environmental costs will save us. I believe in cooperative economics and cooperative democracy, a.k.a. democratic socialism. Now, socialism is a word that turns a lot of people off, but I do think it warrants a discussion. And from here out, I'm going to use the term anti-capitalism if I need to, um, because, look, I know what happens when people with progressive views use the word socialism, um, even though that's what it is. It, it is what it is, you know. But yeah, I use the word anti-capitalism here because really fundamentally, I'm just against the system rather than for any other system at the moment. And uh, yeah, that was my little prologue. Fundamentally, capitalism devalues women's labor, paying women less for the same measure of work. And it depends on women's devalued and unpaid labor to function. Therefore, feminism opposes capitalism. In its current form, our economic system is structurally patriarchal, right? It fundamentally needs women and other marginalized groups of workers with their bodies, their knowledge to help the people and the companies above them make profits. I will break that down a little bit more. Feminism is about abolishing gender-based hierarchies, all of them, all arbitrary hierarchies. Capitalism depends on our work to enforce these hierarchies. In theory, the profits that the top makes are supposed to trickle down and help everyone. But in reality, they never do. Again, we saw this during the pandemic. Profits get spun and recycled in the form of tax breaks and yacht purchases among those in power. Capitalism depends on us complying with this system because without us, the people at the top would never have those yachts and those six homes. <laughs> so we are conditioned to accept the status quo. We're conditioned to think it's how it's always been and always will be. We're conditioned to think there's nothing we can do and sure feels like it some days, right? The patriarchy actually pre-existed capitalism. So capitalism is not like an age old thing. Patriarchy is, but capitalism is not. Many societies were already characterized by a gender division of labor. There was gendered violence, norms that privileged the male. Capitalism's specific contribution to this gendered hierarchy for the past mm, three ish hundred years was the institutionalization of the devaluation of women and their work. Institutionalization really just means like turning it into law, like making it part of the system, like systematizing the devaluation of women and their work. I, I mentioned the devaluation of this work, but what does that mean? While women were already oppressed before capitalism came along, when capitalism did come along, it solidified these hierarchies by assigning monetary value to everything within it 
especially our labor. The hierarchy part then comes in here. The top of the hierarchy's work and labor is more valuable regardless of what they do to earn it. And the lower is undervalued. It's also individualized our work, making it so we are so focused on making our own ends meet for ourselves and putting a roof over our heads that we barely register when others are struggling. That is what capitalism actually does, regardless of what any libertarian bro is going to tell you. <laughs> One of the easiest targets for the construction of this capitalist hierarchy when it was being built, you know, 300 ish years ago, uh, were women. Since it began, capitalism only promised economic success and safety if a woman kept her assigned role as domestic keeper. And of course, she wouldn't get paid for this labor. And this is labor, make no mistake. It's labor that ensures the rest of the system runs smoothly. A true egalitarian society that didn't aim to divide power like that would give every person's labor and bodies the exact same value, right? No matter what gender, sexuality, or skin color. Capitalism is inherently designed not to do that. The patriarchy is useful to capitalism as it gives this unequal system an entire labor force composed of a whole swath of the population who have been conditioned to believe that we aren't equal. For many women, Accepting the system is a matter of survival for themselves. And that's true, right? How many people do you know? How many women do you know that are, you know, just accepted their fate in the system and just resigned themselves to these roles? For many women, accepting the system is just a matter of survival for themselves and their kids, even if they didn't choose it and even if they can't stand it. As long as we're not organizing to fight it, the companies and boards do not give a fuck. As long as we keep showing up for work or doing unpaid work at home to allow our husbands to pull the levers of capitalism at the office, they do not care who they harm, who they exploit. As long as companies can derive maximum benefit, they are happy and content. If profits begin to slow or they're in danger and they need extra labor, they lean on women and marginalized folks to pick up the slack. Of course, they pay less for these people than white men. But without these people, they wouldn't even make profits, as I mentioned. Again, we saw this during COVID. Whole industries were shutting down and now kids needed to be home. Profits were threatened. So women who were even if they worked for companies were expected to pick up the slack by taking care of kids during lockdown, even if they were also employed full time. So women are pushed into the system, not by their choice, but by necessity to survive. Their work is devalued. As I mentioned, we're not given the same amount of pay for the same amount of work. And they are given no support also outside of the traditional family. If they are outside the traditional family structure, they're not giving any adequate resources by our system to survive. And Republican governments have made it their platform to ruthlessly cut social programs and punish welfare queens, quote unquote, welfare queens. Patriarchy's love affair to capitalism also enables politicians to justify their policies when they find it more profitable to shift their responsibility from the state to collective institutions to the privacy of the family. Oh, and have I mentioned also, these politicians won't support us as single women and mothers and are now also forcing us to carry pregnancies to term, thus imposing more kids on us. It's all designed this way. In Louisiana and Texas also, Republicans are coming after no-fault divorce, which once again traps women in domesticity. This was all designed this way, my love. If you think abortion is about killing babies, it's not. It's a fundamentally economic policy stance that ensures that we are kept in the domestic sphere. Now, let's talk for a quick second about spheres. Capitalism and patriarchy have deeply separated women's labor into two spheres, public and domestic slash private. These spheres mean exactly what you think they are. In the public office facing sphere, which comprises of the nine to five machine where women are paid 82 cents to every man's dollar. And then there's the domestic, which is the home. So raising in kids and tending house, which is unpaid. Let's start with the domestic sphere. The fact that women were relegated by the patriarchy to domestic tasks 
allows capitalists to justify their overexploitation and underpayment of women with the argument that our work is just less economically productive than men's. It's just less valuable. But this is a lie. Women's work in the home allows those men at the top, those men who work for the men at the top to continue to pull those levers of capitalism and drive profits. It's because of women's work at home that the system continues. Think of the nuclear family, the iconic unit of capitalism, a husband who works in XYZ office for his asshole boss, but continues to play the game because he's hoping to keep his upward professional trajectory and his wife who cooks and cleans at home so that the husband's body and mind are in tip top shape for the next day and the next day of this corporate profit earning grind. And then, of course, there are 2.5 kids who are raised conditioned to believe that this is the only way they will ever be able to survive and succeed. It is also fucked up. What I mean by this is that women's work here at home is what enables those men at the top to drive profits. The men may be the steering, but it's the women who are the motors. The women's devalued and unpaid labor are what makes capitalism and patriarchy flourish and work. And women of color bear much more of the brunt of this than white women. And if you take anything away from this, let it be that. More and more people are coming around to the idea that the majority of America's social ills might be traced to our relationship with work and labor and the question of whose work is valuable. Again, the pandemic blew this wide open. I am married to and have a lot of essential workers that I love. Believe me, they are not treated like the heroes that you have let you've been led to believe. That was a quick little pandemic fever dream. They're obscenely underpaid and deal with the most bullshit out of all of us. They're exploited and exhausted now more than fucking ever, while the top one percent in the first year of the pandemic, increased their wealth by $1.1 trillion. We witnessed this happen. While my essential worker husband who deals with the public every day got sick with COVID three times, one percenters were traveling and throwing parties at their compounds, and it makes me sick. Furthermore, the pandemic brought an acute realization among the upper and middle classes that their lives had run smoothly because they'd been able to subcontract domestic labor and elder care and child care to other people. After nearly a year of school closures, working parents became keenly aware of the amount of child care they relied on underpaid teachers to provide for eight hours a day. Teachers have always been underpaid and in California, teachers are made up of 73% women. Again, undervalued work and labor. The pandemic showed us who under capitalism gets thrown to the wolves first. And it is not the top 1%. It's a fuck ton of women, too many. And it relies on throwing those people and those women to the wolves. That is the only way it runs. That is the only way it turns a profit for that class of people. And it is designed this way. Let's talk for a second really quickly about girl boss feminism. The term girl boss came into the lexicon in 2013 around during the Obama years when it seemed as if there was some progress going on in our country. Um, around 2010, the economic system was still in crisis after the recession. The gig economy was starting to creep in. Many of us were in debt. We started to lose faith in the system. And Wall Street was particularly hated. Remember Occupy Wall Street? Also, at this time, Silicon Valley's bro-y image problem started getting worse. The tech industry didn't really have any female leaders at all. All. And in the next decade, dozens of brands would start calling for more girl bosses to climb the corporate ladder, smash that glass ceiling, build businesses and show that this time around capitalism could work for all of us. The girl boss era was trying to show us that capitalism could empower women and women could prove that capitalism could still be good. It was a quick fix to their problem. I'm sure the men in charge thought that it was brilliant, right? The term stemmed from the founder of Nasty Gal, Sophia Amoruso, who made waves for daring to go into the kind of business for herself as a founder at a time when it was, it was really only men. And she was young and bright and cute and white. She came up with the term girl boss, uh, sold a memoir with the name and then turned it into a Netflix show. It was only on for one, I think it was Netflix, only on for one season. During girl 
boss, though, women were finally wrangling power away from men who held it for so long in the corporate setting, which was just they saw this as a form of justice. It was just more of the same shit, though. They were taking over as CEOs and launching startups and securing mega investors, many in places that women hadn't dreamed of going before. And as the concept kind of solidified, the idea of the girl boss became about melding your professional self and your identity, your capitalistic aspiration and a very specific and arguably limited version of women's empowerment. The girl boss was going to unapologetically will empires from the rubble of rejection and underestimation that the girl boss faced all of her life. As her companies grew in her image, so did her mythos. Her legacy would be grand and fair because equality was finally coming to work, right? (laughs) Everyone was supposed to win when girl bosses won. But like I said, this was just more capitalism with a pastel pink aesthetic packaged to us in the most marketable way possible. I might catch some heat for this, but I do think this movement did have a place in feminist history. I think we quickly caught on that it was just more of the same bullshit like within a few years. And now we're demanding more, but still it wasn't good. Although girl bossing at the time was perceived positively due to the replacement of white men as corporate leaders, womanhood really shouldn't be defined in opposition to masculinity. It isn't an either or. It's just that both CEOs fucking suck. During Girl Boss, the glowing media profile of the female CEO tried to give us a role model for this like typical working woman, but it turned out she was just as out of touch with many people's realities as the men. There was a company called The Wing and it promised an all-female co-working space. It was founded by Girl Bosses themselves and it would advance feminism through $3,000 co-working memberships. The Wing sold shirts that said, caution, women at work and League of Unusual Women. There was that swagification phase the future is female t-shirts. Nevertheless, she persisted baseball hats. After decades of devalued labor, it's when women were promised that the hard work they put into their jobs would finally be rewarded. And it felt like a last ditch attempt to make American capitalism look like it was worth saving. But the promise became emptier when basic scrutiny revealed that employees at these companies, particularly women of color, still ended up feeling overlooked, overshadowed, and even bullied. Nasty Gal was later accused of a lawsuit, uh, in a lawsuit of being a horrible place to work for pregnant employees. The lawsuit was later settled. Facebook CEO Sheryl Sandberg wrote the best-selling book, Lean In, but only it really only worked for a white-collar executive. It encouraged its readers to overcome sexism by working harder before taking time off, by being assertive yet non-threatening, ambitious but not grabby, and other things that are really hard to do at the same time. Many pointed out that Lean In was really just for women who were able to pay other women to take care of their kids. That's not feminism. That's capitalism trying to convince us that we could still care about profits and be feminists. The girl boss era left as quickly as it came and the pandemic was the final nail in the coffin. The pandemic hit women's careers especially hard, as I mentioned, and women who had kids were tasked with additional work. Many industries that relied on women were shuttering, like uh, hospitality and housekeeping, nannying, teaching. There was also an international reckoning with racial inequality, and it inspired kind of this global reassessment of the merits of these high-powered, high-earning corporate women as champions of the feminist empowerment. We kind of just saw through all the bullshit. The Wing announced in August 2022 that was closing its six branches in the U.S. for good, and Gaslight Gatecube Girl Boss became a meme, and it's now used to point out the hollowness of capitalism. It's also proof every March during Women's History Month and March 8th on International Women's Day that Companies are really just all smoke and mirrors. They can print all the futures female swag they want, but they still refuse to provide 
paid family leave or health plan that favors single women. As the pandemic brought job losses and shined a light on wealth inequality, many of us may be more cynical and wary about the corporate overlords, no matter what form they take, than we were during Girl Boss in 2013. And the rise and fall of Girl Boss also just says a lot about how comfortable we've become with adding social justice to this corporate ethos and marketing. This is really indicative of this very sad fact that these days we look to corporations to implement social change because we've lost faith in our public institutions to do so. Okay, so that's the public sphere. Let's talk domestic sphere. As I've mentioned, the corporate system, which puts the privileged, mostly males, at the top, relies on others to do the domestic labor. It's the grease for the wheels. It's the motor for the steering system. As I mentioned, the patriarchy enforces the sexist notion that caregiving and domestic labor are women's work, which is awfully convenient for capitalists, right? If a woman's natural role is to care for her children, then who needs paid parental leave or public child care? We don't need to provide paid family leave or pay women fairly. They're not even supposed to be here, silly. Women's work in the domestic sphere is invisible in capitalistic societies. A year ago, Oxfam circulated research indicating that if American women made minimum wage for the work they did around the house and for caring for relatives, they'd have earned $1.5 trillion in 2019. $1.5 $1.5 trillion. That's how much they'd, they'd earn if they were paid. Globally, the value of that unpaid labor is actually almost $11 trillion U.S. dollars. That's a lot of fucking money. Okay, now let's take that $1.5 trillion that women would have made in 2019 if they got paid for their labor. And now remember how I said, also said that during the pandemic, the mostly male top 1% made $1.1 trillion? Doesn't that feel like maybe that money belongs to the women that helped make that possible? Let's also talk about the second shift. The second shift refers to women who work a nine to five and then come home to work the rest of the time as a mom and housekeeper. As I mentioned, mainstream feminism, not to mention uh, economics or politics, has mostly ignored domestic labor and instead has measured women's empowerment by their presence in the workplace, which is often attained by, as I said, outsourcing housework and childcare to less economically advantaged women for a low wage. The second shift says this then. Yeah, so women play that game in the workplace and then they come home for their second shift where they remain mired in housework. The work of maintaining the home and caring for children still falls disproportionately to women, even if they have full-time jobs and pay for help. What's more, people who are paid to do domestic labor and care work, like elder care or house cleaning, are, as a group, badly compensated and denied workplace protections or benefits. These jobs are held mostly by women of color and immigrants. This arrangement is hardly a success for women at large. Sylvia Federici, the 78-year-old scholar and theorist of domestic labor, is one of the most influential socialist feminist thinkers of the last century. She is the longtime advocate of the idea that domestic work is unwaged labor, and she helped found the Wages for Housework movement in the early 70s. She also brought into question uh, the idea of reproductive labor, which is a term not simply to refer to having kids and raising them. It also indicates all that we do that is sustaining, keeping ourselves and others around us fed, well, safe, clean, cared for, thriving. It's work that you have to do over and over again, work that seems to erase itself. It's essential work that our economy tends to not acknowledge or compensate. This disregard for reproductive labor is unjust and unsustainable, Federici writes. She also argues that it's not natural that the kinds of work that involve care and sustaining life were the province of any one gender. Neither is it natural or inevitable that people be subjugated by an economic system that benefits very few. These were merely conventions used to the rise of an economic system that has become so all-encompassing that we no longer dare to imagine any other way. It was made this way for someone's profit. This way of things can be reversed, though, she says. In closing, I wanted to share a quote from Audre Lorde's 1984 essay, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, house, which I will link in the show notes and is absolute must read. Lorde wrote about how systems like white supremacy and patriarchal capitalism perpetuate themselves and how difficult it is to break them apart. 
This is what she says. For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us to temporarily beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. The master's house is capitalism. The master's tools are girl boss, lack of paid parental leave, a gendered wage gap, harassment in the workplace and forced domesticity. The master's tools are banning abortion and restricting birth control. The master's tool is abolishing no fault divorce like the Republicans are trying to do in Texas and Louisiana. The master's tools will never dismantle capitalism. So what do we do now? We support communities seeking to address unmet needs via each other. This is called mutual aid. We rely on mutual aid to give as much as we get wherever we can and however we can. We help others in good faith. For example, recently, there was a group of coders who built a free online tool to help families form and schedule childcare co-ops. Using something as simple as a Google Doc, neighbors can write down what they need and what they can give, forming or revealing some kind of a network of symbiotic relationships. These exchanges often seem mundane. Instead of hiring a plumber, a neighbor might come to your house and help you with your sink. In exchange, you might help him or something else or someone else with pet sitting or taxes or garden work. In addition to donating to big nonprofits, you might also reply to calls on your local mutual aid network to help a neighbor make rent. We can band together to pool and increase our resources without relying on these harmful systems. Because guess what those people at the top want of us? Definitely not relying on ourselves and each other. I'll tell you that. That's it for this week, my love. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so grateful you joined us. Once again, if you are not signed up for Reclaiming the Newsletter, please do. You can sign up at the website at Reclaim Effing Everything. And don't forget to go to Spotify or Apple or wherever you're listening. Give this podcast a five-star rating and review. It helps me so much. And remember, your work, whatever it is, is so valuable. It deserves to be compensated just as much. Fight for what you deserve. And if we all do it, it's so much more powerful. Look at Iceland in 1975. It fucking worked. It brought the patriarchy to its knees. And it should because we are fucking valuable as hell, my loves. Don't ever think otherwise. Until next week, I love you to pieces and girl fucking power. Power.